Our plane had made it about halfway across the Atlantic, heading from the United States towards Europe. And about halfway there, the pilot comes on the intercom and says, You know, passengers, I got you this far. I got you this far. Now it's time for you to get the rest of the way on your own. So in just a few moments, we're going to open the doors of the plane. We want you to jump out and fly the rest of the way to Europe. Now, of course, we would say, well, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't be able to fly. We can't flap our arms that fast. We would certainly perish. Now, we know that that scenario is ridiculous. But did you know that many people approach the very important topic of salvation in the exact same manner? It goes something like this. Jesus, if you'll just kind of get me into the kingdom, if if you'll just kind of get me, you know, to where I need to be, I'll take it from here. And I'll make sure that I make it happen to the rest of my life. Jesus, you get me this far, and then I'll pick up the slack, and I'll put forth the effort to make sure that I make it to heaven. Or, Jesus, if you'll get me saved, I'll keep me saved. A lot of people think like that regarding salvation. And this issue is an issue that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians. So keeping that in mind, look with me, Galatians chapter 3. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse of this wonderful New Testament letter. Paul wrote this letter to some churches scattered throughout the first century Roman province of Galatia. We've made it to Galatians chapter 3. Now you know that the overall context of this letter is Paul is dealing with false teachers. He's dealing with folks that have come in and led people astray regarding the gospel. And basically, here's what was happening. After Paul started these churches preaching the gospel, folks got saved, churches came together, Paul left, and then these Judaizers came in behind him and they said, hey, we're glad you've placed your faith in Jesus, that's great, but if you really want to make sure you're right with God, you've got to be circumcised and keep the other aspects of the Jewish Law. If, if you really want to have favor, if you really want to be right with God, you got to do those things too. So they were, in effect, adding to the gospel. They were saying the gospel is Jesus plus your obedience. And Paul is writing to say, no, the gospel is Jesus. He alone saves. And as he deals with all of the different false teachings and the implications of their teaching... We find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to ask you this morning if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And look how he begins this third chapter. Oh, foolish Galatians. He may not be invited to the Christmas party talking like that. (laughs) Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Second time he's used that word. 
having begun, watch this, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're so grateful, Lord, for another opportunity to gather as a faith family. To fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we come to this time studying your word expectant. Lord, we expect you to speak to us. And we ask, Lord, that as your word goes forth, that you would accompany the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. That our eyes might be opened. That we might be moved by the truth that you show us. And that we might, Lord, respond to what you show us. Lord, I pray that we would leave today different than when we walked in. So, Lord, have your way in this, in this place, by your grace and only and always for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, notice he used the word foolish twice there in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Verse 3, are you so Foolish, he is upset that they were led astray from truth. And and look at the word he uses in verse 1. Who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? That word translated bewitched is the only time that we find this word in the New Testament. Only time. And the word means something like fascinate. Uh, It can even mean something like hypnotize. He can be saying, who's bewitched you? Who's hypnotized you, who has turned your focus from Jesus to these false gospels. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce writes, their new behavior was so strange, so completely at odds with the liberating message which they had previously accepted, that it appeared as if someone had put a spell on them. And Paul's saying, what's going on? Who bewitched you? Why are you acting so Foolish, why? Who led you astray? Warren Wearsby comments on this same verse. He writes, it was obvious that these people had experienced something in their lives when Paul had first visited them. But the Judaizers had come along and convinced them that their experience, listen, was not complete. Jesus had brought them to a certain point, but they needed to do something to go further. They needed something else, he writes. That something else was obedience to the law of Moses. These false teachers had bewitched them and turned them into fools. And here's what the false teachers were saying, summarizing. They are basically saying that you begin, listen, and a lot of people believe this, maybe some in this room, you begin the Christian life by faith, but you maintain your salvation by your works or performance. I'll say it again. A lot of folks believe you begin the Christian life by faith, But it's up to you to maintain it. It's up to your performance. Part of your salvation is up to you, which, by the way, is a terrifying prospect. That's what people believe. And Paul wants to explain to them in these six verses we read together. Actually, farther than that, but I cut myself off at verse 6. I had a third point and I cut it just for you, all right? But Paul wanted to explain that the Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. 
When we leave today, hopefully we'll all understand the Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. And what he does in verses 1 through 6 is he asks six questions. Some rhetorical, some not so rhetorical. And he's asking these questions to help clarify uh, the gospel and help to show their wrong thinking related to the gospel. And so I want to give you two aspects of the, the truths that surface in this text. And I'll say it like this. If you believe that your performance secures your relationship with God, you don't understand two things. I'm going to say it again. If you believe that your performance secures your relationship with God, you don't understand two things. Number one, you don't understand the significance of the cross. You don't understand what happened when Jesus hung on a cross from 9 in the morning to 3 in the afternoon, taking our sin upon himself, bearing the wrath of God in the place of ruined sinners like me. You don't understand all that took place at Calvary. And that's the point Paul makes in verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now watch this. Interesting phrase. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does that mean? Publicly portrayed as crucified. He preached the gospel to the Galatians a few decades probably after Jesus Christ was crucified. So what does it mean that that Jesus was crucified in their midst or in their sight. Well, the word translated, publicly portrayed, was a term used for written proclamations or public notices. And so uh, what he's saying to them is this, I, in a very public way, preach the cross to you. I, I served notice publicly that Jesus died on the cross. I explained to you what happened at Calvary. You see, Paul preached the cross to them with such power and in such a vivid way that the significance of the cross was unmistakable. It's almost like Paul is saying, I preached the cross to you in the power of the Spirit. It it was that real to you. It was so real that you probably could hear the ring of the hammer driving home The nail. You probably could hear the anguished cries of Jesus on the cross. I preached the the cross and it was so real to you, so vivid. You heard uh, about the cross and you embraced the cross. Why have you been led astray? That's the point that he's making. So he's saying, you embraced the cross and now you're saying the cross is not enough. I made... I made public proclamation Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And now you're being led astray into thinking your performance has to help the cross along. You see, when you and I were saved, we weren't saying, at least I wasn't saying at nine years of age, I wasn't saying, I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. When I was saved, I knew I wasn't good enough to get to heaven. I remember at my dining room table on that summer afternoon, my pastor, F.T. Rogers, taking me to Romans 6.23, and I read it out loud. The wages of sin is death. And I knew, I am a sinner. I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. I'm not good enough to get to heaven. And That's when the good news of the cross of Jesus Christ was pressed home to my heart, to my soul, as my pastor 
reminded me that Jesus died on the cross in my place. He took the punishment that I deserved. And so when I was saved, it wasn't like I was saying, I hope I'm good enough. I was saying, I'm, I'm thankful for the cross. It was the case of the Galatians. But now they're being led astray as if to think the cross is not good enough. You see, trusting in your moral effort or trusting in your performance undermines the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. Let me give you this statement. And I was excited to be able to, to share the statement with you, all right? When I, when I wrote it down, I was like, well, I can't wait to say this. You ready? It's a good thing about preaching. You know what you're about to say and you get excited about what you're about to say. Here it is. Ready? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins. Listen, not just the sins that I committed up until nine years of age, but the sins I committed yesterday. If Jesus just got me into heaven and said, now it's up to you, can you be sinless from here to heaven? I'd be in trouble. But Jesus took all of my sin on himself. So when he died on the cross, he died for all of our sins. Listen, on the cross, he took all of our wrath. The wrath that you and I deserve. Hell, he took our hell force. We'll see later in Galatians 3. He became a curse for us. That we might be set free. He took all of God's wrath. And when Jesus died on the cross... He secured our relationship with God for all time. For anyone that sees their need of a Savior, repents and places their faith in Christ, because of what Jesus did on the cross, their relationship with God is secured because Jesus Christ died for all of their sins and took all of their wrath. You see, when Jesus breathed his last, listen to me, he didn't say, Redemption is started. Good luck, guys. I got you this far. Now you've got to work your way to heaven. What did he say? To tell us die. It is finished. He finished the work of redemption at Calvary. Your salvation is not up to you. It's only made available to you by the finished work of Christ. You can't save yourself. You're not good enough. And we don't have to because of what happened at the cross. If we could compare life to a test. Let's just say that life were a test. I'm glad it's not because I hate tests. Let's just say that life was a test. The gospel says that Jesus died to forgive us for our low score. Basically, our error, right? But then he gave us his righteousness, imputed righteousness, which means he gave us his perfect score. Jesus scored perfect on his test, right? He never sinned. And and the moment of conversion, he took our sin and, and died for it. He gave us his righteousness. He gave us his perfect score. Now, if that's true, why would we say, hey, Jesus, thanks for the perfect score, but let me see how I can do on this test. Let me see if I can earn a good enough score to make it into heaven on my own. Why would you do that? Why would you attempt that? You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. We all fall short of the glory of God before our conversion. Watch this. And after our conversion. 
And so, Paul wants to understand, the reason you think your performance secures your relationship with God is because you don't understand the significance of the cross. There's another thing they didn't understand. And, and maybe some in this room don't understand. He's saying, you don't understand the gift of the Spirit. You don't understand the gift of the Spirit. Look, look what he says there in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. He's, he's rapid-fire questions, all right? He's, he's kind of revealing their, their wrong thinking. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The answer is, they received the Spirit when they placed their faith in Christ. They didn't earn the Spirit of God. God gave them the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. You see, the indwelling, sealing Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is evidence that you and I are saved. So this point there. He said, when you receive the Spirit, it wasn't because you earned it. It was given to you as a gift by faith at the moment of conversion. Now, other verses speak of this gift of the Spirit at the moment of conversion. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 Paul writes, in him you also, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when I was saved at nine years of age, the Holy Spirit came to indwell me and to secure my relationship with God, to seal me. As if to say, He's mine, and he'll always be mine. And nothing and no one can change that. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So when you were saved, the Spirit of God was given to you as a gift. He lives on the inside of you. And that reality is, a, is an indicator that you're truly saved. But it didn't happen because you earned the gift of the Spirit. You received it by faith. It's not like you met Jesus and said, Okay, God, I'm going to have a really good week this week. I'm going to have my quiet time. And I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give my tithe. And, and if I do good this week, will you give me the Spirit? No. The Spirit came as a gift at the moment of conversion. In fact, if you would have asked me at nine years of age, if I knew about the indwelling, sealing work of the Spirit, I would have said, No. Pretty cool, tell me more. But I didn't understand all the implications of my conversion. But now as I study the Word of God, I see that when I was saved, the Holy Spirit came to enter me at the moment I placed my faith in Christ. Not as a, something I earned, but as a gift from God. Everybody got that? So he's reminding them, did you receive the Spirit? By faith or by works of the law. Tom Schreiner writes this, The Galatians did not need to be circumcised and to observe the works of law in order to belong to the people of God. Because they had clearly received the Holy Spirit. The reception of the Spirit, listen to this, is the mark that signifies that one belongs to the people of God. Now just come in real close and just concentrate just for a moment. Remember the overall context. False teachers saying, if you want to show people you're a, you're a child of God, a child of Abraham, you belong to God, you've got to be circumcised as a mark of your relationship. Paul's saying, you don't need to be circumcised. You have the Spirit. He's the mark of your relationship with God. And by the way, here's what's interesting. 
the Spirit is the fulfillment of what circumcised picture, uh, circumcision pictured. Do you know that? So why did they give them the, the gift of the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament? It was, a, it was an outward picture of what the, the, the Lord does inwardly. The Lord cuts away the old man and makes us brand new on the inside. And that's what circumcision uh, foreshadowed. Let me, let me read you this uh, verse from Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor circumcision, listen, outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he's saying, listen to me. You have received the fulfillment of what circumcision pictured. You have the Spirit. So don't think that being circumcised is going to make you more right with God than you already are. Your salvation is secured by the Spirit, not by your performance to the law. And so he makes that point about the indwelling Spirit given as a gift by faith. And and here's what we need to understand about the Spirit in, in, in our Christian life. The indwelling Spirit, after you're converted empowers your Christian life by faith. Now look back with me in verse 3. Are you so foolish? How did you receive the Spirit of God? By works of the law or by faith? By faith, right? Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Are you earning your favor with God by your performance. That's the, what he's saying here in this text. The point he's making is the Spirit of God empowers our Christian life. Now, let me talk about our performance because the Bible does talk of obedience for the Christian, right? So how does all this factor in? Because the Bible's clear that we're to be obedient. So how does our, our obedience uh, line up with all that I've been saying thus far? Let me give you a couple thoughts. Our performance, listen to me, doesn't give us more favor with God or make our salvation more secure. Our obedience does not give us more favor with God. We have all of his favor through Jesus. The Bible says in Ephesians 1.3, we've been granted every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We have all of God's favor, all of his grace, all of his gifts in Christ. So you don't earn more By your performance, you already have it all. And you don't make your salvation more secure by being more obedient. That's not what obedience is all about. That's what he says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? It is foolish to think, listen to me, that human effort apart from God's help will help us to grow into maturity. It's just not going to happen. Now here's what's interesting there in verse 3. He says, having begun by the Spirit, you're being perfected by the flesh. That word begun and the word perfected, those same two words are used over in Philippians 1.6. You know what Philippians 1.6 says? Turn there, I want to show you this. Such an important verse. Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That word began, completion, same two words Paul uses in verse 3. So notice what he says. God begins the work 
and God brings it to conclusion. It's all God's work. So his point is this. Your, your obedience does not make your relationship with God more secure. It doesn't. And, and to think that you can't even be obedient apart from the power of the Spirit is foolish. Then in verse 4 back in Galatians 3 it says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, that word suffer could be translated experience. So his point is this. You experienced the preaching of the cross. You placed your faith in Christ. Was, all, was that all in vain? Are you walking away from the gospel? To try to earn your salvation? Was that all that in vain or, or was it not in vain? Are you still able to come back to the truth? That's the point that he's making. And Paul's point is, Christ has done so much for you. Was it in vain? Are you really turning your back on him by putting your trust in the law? And so our performance doesn't give us more favor with God or make our salvation more secure. Adrian Rogers famously says, I would not trust my, my best five minutes to get me into heaven. It's a good quote. I like how the old hymn says it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I, listen, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. So our performance doesn't give us more favor with God or make our salvation more secure. So does obedience matter? Does it matter? Let me ask, does it matter, church? It matters. Let me tell you why obedience matters. We seek to obey as an act of worship and gratitude, listen, so that we can have closer fellowship with God. Now, once you're saved, your relationship with God is secure. Jesus died for all of your sins and took all of God's wrath, and he gave you the Spirit as a gift who seals you to the day of redemption. So your salvation is secure. Jesus said it like this in John 10. No one and nothing can snatch you out of God's hand. Isn't that good news? Romans says it like this. Nothing, Romans 8, end of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are truly saved, you are eternally secure. Nothing can change your relationship with God. But... During your time on this earth, your obedience can affect your closeness to God. Your fellowship with God. Not your relationship. He's your father in Christ. He'll always be your father. Amen? He doesn't rescind adoption. You're his. But obedience, listening to God, responding to God, helps us to grow closer to God. That's what obedience is all about. So that we can have closer fellowship with God. So wait, is that biblical? Listen to what Jesus said over in John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Your obedience is an act of love. Not because you're trying to keep yourself saved. You're not good enough to do that. But your obedience is to show that you love me and to draw closer to me. And so... We seek to obey as an act of worship and gratitude so we can grow closer to God. Verse 23 of John 14 says that if we obey, a door's opened up and the Father and Son come and, and, and come and dwell with us closer. That's what obedience is all about. So obedience absolutely matters. And by the way, obedience makes sense. God is the creator and when he gives us commands, his commands make sense, right? 
They'll keep you from trouble, from doing dumb things, from destroying your life. I mean, they make sense. They're, they're God's pathway to joy in this life because you're living according to the commandments of your Father who loves you and cares for you and gives you those commands as, as guidelines. God is not trying, by the way, God's commandments are not Him trying to take away your fun. God's commandments are to maximize your joy. He knows what's best for you. But here's where it comes back to the role of the Spirit. Our obedience, listen to me, is not possible without God's empowering Spirit. Back to Galatians 3. Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. They had seen God do some mighty things in their midst. You can read back in Acts 14 about the mighty things God did in Galatia. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law, by your performance, or by hearing with faith? And the answer is faith because look what he says in verse 6 as the illustration. We'll get to this next week. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We live by faith. We are following in the footsteps of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. So what's the point? The point is that the Spirit fills up your life and empowers you to obey by faith. Not by earning it, but by trusting He's in you and trusting Him to help you to live an obedient Christian life. It's by faith. Another old hymn we sing. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. If you are trusting your performance to secure your relationship with God, you don't understand the cross, and you don't understand the gift of the Holy Spirit, His role in your life, how that interacts with your obedience. In uh, 1998, actually it was right, is it midnight, going from 1997 to 1998, so New Year's, um, I uh, proposed to Claire, and it was, it was incredibly romantic, but I'll, I'll spare you the details. I'll spare you the details now. Some of you heard the story before. I, it wasn't that romantic. I messed up. But anyway, I gave her an engagement ring, and, uh, and she wore that ring to say, hey, I, I'm... Wage. We, we're getting married. It's going to happen. That's what that engagement ring um, signified. And the word uh, in Ephesians 1 that speaks of the Spirit being our guarantee was the word they used in the first century for engagement ring. Do you know that? So the Lord gives us the Spirit is to say, they belong to me. I'm going to bring them home to heaven. It's going to happen. There's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. They'll be there. Why? I've given them the Spirit a mark of the reality that we belong to God in Christ. So when I gave Claire that engagement ring, she wasn't saying, boy, I sure hope that I'm engaged to Wade. Boy, if, maybe, if I, maybe if I treat him good, I'll be engaged to Wade. No, she had the ring. I am engaged to Wade. See the difference there? And then we grew in our relationship and got married. Listen to me. Your performance does not strengthen your salvation. You're saved by Jesus Christ alone. The strength of your salvation is contingent upon what Christ has done. 
Obedience is important. It's a big deal. That's why we baptized this morning. It's obedience, right? It's a big deal. But it doesn't secure your salvation or make God love you more. It helps you to draw closer to him in fellowship. And here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with. The Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. The Christian life from beginning to end is by faith. Aren't you glad that when you're flying over the Atlantic, the, the captain doesn't say, I got you this far, fly the rest of the way. And aren't you glad that the Lord doesn't say, hey, I got you into the kingdom, I got you saved, now you keep it best you can. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't say that to me. He saved me completely. The work of redemption is finished. We should trust in him and not add to that glorious, beautiful gospel.